And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. Let's get elevated. This is your host, Heather Steppe, co-founder of KC Hemp Company, bringing you all things cannabis to the hustle. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Uh, I am beyond honored to be talking to our guest today. He is a longtime cannabis activist, a VP of operations of Peak Relief, which is a medical marijuana dispensary in Maryland. His name is Chris Singhoff, and thank you so much for being here, Chris. How are you today? I'm great, Heather. Thank you so much for uh, having me on today. I'm excited to talk to you about cannabis. Oh, gosh, I, I can't wait. You know, uh, I love cannabis. You love cannabis. Most people do. <laughs> so the, I'm, I'm thrilled to bring these conversations to the hustle. So let's just start out with learning a little bit more about you. Give me a little bit about your background. How did you get into cannabis? Yeah, so uh, I am a Kansas native. I was born in, H- uh, born in Olathe and moved to Hutchinson, raised there. Um, I went to college at the University of Northern Colorado, and while I was there, um, I started developing some pretty severe um, degenerative joint issues. Um, I was subsequently diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, um, and that kind of began my um, experience with uh, cannabis and cannabis use, uh, mainly for pain management uh, associated with that psoriatic arthritis. Previous experience I had uh, as a chiropractic assistant, I was uh, enjoyed talking to people about uh, how they were feeling, found that I had an ability to talk to people about their health and get them to share information that they might not be able to share with everyone, uh, which really enjoying that uh, led me into um, applying for and getting a job as a bud tender. I uh, worked my way up uh, to general manage a store and eventually 11 licensed vertically integrated company in, in Colorado. That led into consulting and operations and compliance. Uh, and then uh, some friends of mine approached me um, because of my experience in that uh, to help them write their application for the dispensary license in the state of Maryland. And when we were awarded that, I developed all the operational plans and continued to 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 change and uh, augment our operations to, to make it more efficient. Wow, that's awesome. So, I mean, you've basically built business and cannabis across the country. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah, I have a lot of experience in, in, in you know, Colorado space, Maryland space, but um, being a student of cannabis and cannabis policy and how to make the best cannabis policy, I'm, I'm, always reading new legislation that's coming out. I'm always looking at other states' programs, how they get up and running, um, the, the pros, the cons of those. Uh, I'm, I'm really a student of the practical application of medical cannabis. So I'm continuing to learn all the time. Yeah, that's awesome. So 
Talk to me a little bit about um, the difference, you know, in in the two types of cannabis, right? There's medical and recreational. Medical obviously being recommended from a, a doctor or a physician and recreational being for adult use. And there's sure. varying laws across the country. States allow which. Um, medical seems to be the most prevalent now. Uh, but but tell me a little bit about what does that do to your business? How is running a medical dispensary different than running a recreational dispensary? Yeah, so really there's not a whole lot of difference and that might surprise people except for the clientele and the information that they're sharing. So uh, for a lot of medical cannabis activists uh, like myself, we believe that uh, all cannabis use is medical. Um, And so really we view adult use as over the counter. So as a retailer, my responsibility to the customer is the same whether I'm in a medical marijuana dispensary or a adult use dispensary. Uh, it's to get the, the individual the best product for them at the correct dosing so they don't have negative side effects and they can, can enjoy the benefits of cannabis. Nice. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a good too, because you talk about dosing, the correct dosing, the unwanted side effects. I mean, I know so many people who, you know, used cannabis one time and they were like, I had a terrible experience. I was stoned and paranoid and anxious and I will never touch it again. And, you know, trying to convince someone like you probably just didn't use the right thing is hard because it can be, you know, it can be a pretty rough experience. So absolutely. how do you gauge you like, let's say you have a customer coming in, you know, how, how do you gauge what is the right product for them? Yeah. So really um, the first question I always talk to, to a new patient or a new customer is what is your previous experience with cannabis? Because I want to hear if they've had a negative experience, like you're saying, like they overdid it or they took too many edibles or things like that. I want to know that because that gives me the background information to be able to get them a better dose. So from there, if they have uh, a, a lot of experience with cannabis, I'll you know ask a few questions, but really let them guide the interaction. Uh, with a brand new patient, someone who doesn't have that much experience, you know it's it's finding what methods of delivery work for them. Are they uh, adverse to the thought of inhalation? Are they adverse to the thought of smoking? If they are, then hey, we'll stay away from flour. Uh, and we'll go into a, a concentrate cartridge uh, for the consistent dosing and uh, the low uh, intake necessary for um, the, the desired effect. Um, and then from there, it's convincing them that, hey, we got to take this slow. Um, even if you're not feeling it, still take it slow, you know, with a cartridge, take a hit, put it down for five minutes, come back to it if you need it. Uh, if you forget about it, hey, you got the perfect dose there. So it's really just having a conversation with people, getting them to share their experience, uh, and then listening to them is the big thing uh, and not pushing my ideas, what I think they should be using uh, onto them. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can imagine that having an educated staff, having people understand the ins and outs of the endocannabinoid system, the different cannabinoids and different strains would be incredibly important. Absolutely. Uh, and that's that's a really big failure, uh, I think, so far in the medical cannabis uh, dispensary space is that education. Um, you know, I talk about the personal responsibility as us as retail vendors. Um, our responsibility is make sure that the patient comes back 
And we can't do that unless they have a good experience. And so um, not having those, those bud tenders or retail sales associates trained on how to interact with these patients, a, a lot of patients are going to have bad experiences and not come back to either your store or medical cannabis at all. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's bad for business. That's bad for them. <laughs> that's bad for, all the way around. It's um, bad for the industry. We get, you know, bad, you know, we get the, the, the stories of, of people going to the hospital because they use too many edibles and that kind of thing. And, and really that's, that's education. Um, and you know, as, as far as kids getting into edibles, that's also education. That's also looking at a package and saying, you know what, I know you as a patient, I know you have young kids. I know that package isn't necessarily the most secure child proof packaging. So I'm going to send you home with a better package so that you can put that into, into another package to, to prevent children from getting into it. So really it's education all the way around. Yeah, that's awesome. I know, um, you know, in different states are different, but I know you can kind of speak on Maryland, but Colorado, but I, I would, I would assume we're seeing the same across the country as, as new medical programs start to roll out as far as the regulations go, you know, like you said, childproof packaging. I know that's a big one that they're pushing for here in the medical bill in Kansas, which I don't know a single person who wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> I think one of the issues that you run into is this the cannabis industry as a whole and their overproduction of plastics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, heavy duty plastics. And it's like, man, you know, we believe in this plant that can do so much regenerative health. And then we're throwing them into these plastic packages. But, you know, that's, that's just, I guess, part of emerging industry, you know, trying to mm -hmm. figure it out as we go. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting a license in this space, uh, as far as helping other people, um, you know, write their applications and things. Talk to me a little bit about that process. I mean, how difficult was that? And, uh, you know, you being from Kansas, did that have any impact, the likelihood of your company getting a license at being an out-of-state person? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, I heard uh, you talking about regulations from other states and if they're, you know, pretty much the same nowadays, they are 100% not. Um, some states, uh, such as Maryland, have very, very strict regulations. Uh, we have regulations on um, where we store our video surveillance, as well as how long we have to retain it. Um, we have on-site and off-site storage, so we have big servers for that. So those kind of implications uh, don't always exist in all the markets. If we look at Oklahoma, when they rolled out their program, they had very few regulations. Um, the, the requirements on licenses were really put on by the insurance companies and say, hey, if you want to be insured, you're going to have to have video surveillance. You're going to have to have access controls. You're going to have to have inventory management systems. Um, now that Oklahoma kind of saw their failure, uh, they're drafting several regulations. And thankfully, they started testing products for the first time in 2020. But, um, you know, so it's really the, the regulations aren't the same. Um, and that, that ties into the applications. Um, it's, it's very difficult to write a technical application for a medical cannabis dispensary. Um, 
you have to take a look at all the regulations and and meet those regulations. So it takes a, a legal analytical mind. Uh, we had a team of about 10 or 11 people that helped write this with specific areas of expertise. So, um, you know, I think that is the number one item when we're talking about getting a license up and running is just like any other business, I need to identify my weaknesses, I need to identify my strengths, and I need to bring other people on to support me in that. And so building that team is essential. Um, from there, it's it's taking your ideas and putting them down on paper. Um, like I said, they they need to be they need to match the regulations, but um, you know there's some creativity there that that's allowed. And you know, uh, one aspect that I like to to refer to um, is Maryland's prohibition on deli sales, uh, deli style. So when they so when you go into a dispensary and they weigh it to order, basically. You say, hey, I want an eighth of granddaddy perps, um, and they just weigh out 3.5 grams and hand it to you in a compliant container. Um, that was prohibited originally uh, in the state of Maryland, and so we had to develop regulations around that. And so we wanted that control over the end product for that patient. And so what we did is we came up with a kitchen style where an order is put back to a, a processing zone. There it's weighed out and then brought up to the front. So it's really just, you know, thinking about how can I do this meeting compliance, meeting regulations, but also making sure that patients have the best experience. So, you know, um, yeah. And as far as me living in Kansas, uh, I didn't live in Kansas when we applied. Uh, okay. Maryland's uh, application period uh, initially was in 2015. Uh, they said that they were going to issue licenses by the beginning of 2016. And so in preparation, uh, my wife and I moved to Kansas, uh, lived with my parents for about three months. And then the state of Maryland said, well, we're not going to actually issue licenses until 2017. Um, so we had to make a decision on where we were going forward with not knowing if we were going to have a license to operate in Maryland, we weren't comfortable moving out there. So we decided to open a, a, our farm here in Kansas and we've been operating our farm since 2016 while I've been doing remote work and traveling out to Maryland uh, when we received that. So really we, we sat there for three years on our hands waiting to find out if we got a license. And so that's why I moved to Kansas. Yeah. And you know, that is such a great point too, because when people want to get into this industry, I mean, medical is more widespread and it is so hard to get into. I mean, especially if you're in a state that has caps on licenses. So if that's part of the regulations is we're only going to give out this many licenses. I mean, you have to be able to meet those to a T. You know, we've kind of seen a little bit of issue over on the Missouri side with their rollout and not having enough licenses and, you know, the state getting sued and all this crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's, it's so different than, you know, starting up uh, just due to the regulations and uh, the cost associated. Uh, I know you have to pay thousands of dollars just to apply for the license. And then if you mm -hmm. get it, you're tens of thousands of dollars a year on top of that, just to hold it. Not to mention, yep. you know, regulations. You're talking about um, things have to be done in a different part of your building. So you have to set up processes and costs and inventory. 
So, you know, while people look at the industry as this booming, you know, tons of money coming in, how realistic is that for you as a business owner? I mean, with all of your overhead costs, you know, how, how does that affect how you do business? Yeah. So uh, I think you're, you're hitting the, the nail on the head there. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made in cannabis, um, but the, it takes a lot of money to make, make money in cannabis. So um, starting out uh, outside of real estate costs is about 2.5 million to, to uh, meet regulations for the state. Um, mainly due to the the retrofitting and uh, the impact resistance of our vault space uh, we have about a quarter million dollars in servers to hold all of our um, video surveillance that we have to for the state so uh, it takes uh, quite quite a bit of funds to get going um, the turnaround yeah the turnaround and the profit um, is being hampered right now um, as a business owner, uh, I cannot write off uh, a lot of things due to uh, 280E and the IRS's view of cannabis as trafficking illegal drugs. Um, so we pay an effective tax rate of about 65, 70%. Um, so it's very difficult to, uh, to, to make money in this industry. And I think it will be until you know, federal tax regulations are, are changed. Uh, and hopefully that's, that's just down there, down the road. Absolutely. And I, so in my last episode, last Friday was talking to Dan Herter and he's with American hip distributors and he was, you know, hit, hitting on some of those same points too, as far as when you are trying to run a business where you're being slapped in the face with regulations every time you turn around, where you're paying more money to start that business up, I mean, you really have to have your why. That why needs to be in place because yeah. this industry is brutal. And so while it may seem appealing, like, yeah, I wanna wanna be in the cannabis industry and you know, grow cannabis or sell cannabis in a retail dispensary, uh, it is just never that simple. Yeah. So I totally applaud you, your team, anybody who, you know, has been able to go through and come out of side of medical cannabis side, because it is brutal. Having that why really makes a difference. Absolutely. And, you know, a, a lot of our companies uh, out in Maryland with it being uh, what we call a merit-based application where uh, it didn't, didn't matter if you met the, the minimum requirements, um, they picked who they thought were the best candidates um, and they being the state. Um, we we compete with multi-state operators. You know, several licenses have been sold in Maryland for north of $80 million um, to large multi-billion dollar multi-state operators. So not only are we, you know, pushing back against federal regulations and IRS um, taxes and not being able to deduct a lot of things that most businesses can. We're also competing with billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, being brought into the space from uh, multi-state operators. So it is extremely difficult, but like you said, if you have your why, if you are here because cannabis is, is good medicine, because you believe in it as medicine, um, that comes through to your patients. Uh, it comes through, through patient loyalty, um, you know, we have a high patient retention because we do value when patients come back. Um, 
so really it's it's if you have that strong why like you're saying um it's it's harder to fail it's not impossible but it's harder yeah so so what is your customer retention rate um i mean we're up in the the 80 percent uh retention and really it's due to our loyalty programs um because we are a cannabis retailer and we don't have a uh a cultivation site to provide product for us. We're wholesale purchasing all of our product and really at the whim of those cultivators and processors as to what they want to sell it to it for. Um, and so because of that, uh, Maryland still has extremely high prices. So to offset that, the more you come and see us at Peak Relief, the more we are going to ensure that your your medicine becomes more and more affordable for you. So uh, that's kind of how we build our, our retention. Awesome. So so as the um, the retailer, how do you ensure that the product you're getting is of quality to you? I mean, because cannabis grows differently. You know, each strain is different, has different terpene profiles, different levels of cannabinoids. Um, but not only that, each grower grows differently, you know, mm-hmm. down to the nutrients you use in the soil or whether you try to go more of an organic route. So when you guys are choosing people to get your product from, is it a situation in Maryland where there's so few cultivators that you're kind of what you can? I know that tends to be what Missouri is kind of dealing with right now. Or do you have a little bit more of a selective process? Like explain that a little bit for us. Yeah, so uh, Maryland has, I believe it's 19 cultivators for the state, um, and uh, there are there are cultivators in the state that won't work with other uh, companies, and so that number diminishes, uh, especially with the big multi-state operators. Um, so really, we're left with uh, just really a few cultivators that we're able to purchase from. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have any quality assurance or quality control. Um, we do voice our opinion. Uh, doesn't always mean that it's heard or respected. But, um, you know, if if something comes in and it's not up to quality, then, then we'll reject that package. Um, and especially if we're not able to um, price that uh, price that item to the quality standard that it is. So if, you know, if it costs too much, uh, and it's just not good, um, then we're definitely going to have to reject that package because it's going to be sitting on our shelves. Um, if our bud tenders don't believe in it, then, then they're not going to sell that product. So it's going to be sitting there for a long time. Um, now, as far as how, how we go ahead and, and, and do that quality control, uh, we we look at and weigh and verify all deliveries. So we put eyes on every package. Uh, we do tours of cultivation sites. Um, you know those those kind of base items that that we see. And then it's really um, how supportive is the the producer or the cultivator uh, to what we want to do. Um, and and so you know if they're willing to come in for uh, in-store events uh, and education for themselves, then uh, you know it. It is more likely that we're going to probably be purchasing from them because they stand they stand behind their product and they put their face out there um, behind their product. So, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I'm going to take just a moment to thank today's sponsor. Today's episode of Startup Puzzle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. So let's get right back into the medical retail. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about COVID. I know everybody's so sick of talking about COVID. <laughs> I want to ask you how that went for you because one thing that I found incredibly interesting was when the shutdowns happened, medical marijuana dispensaries were not included, at least from what I had heard. Mm -hmm. So how did that impact you? I mean, were you guys able to stay open um, other than, you know, the normal protections everybody's kind of put in place, business to business? What did yeah, so Maryland was very supportive of the medical cannabis industry. Um, they see it as medicine, just so you know, there's no sales tax on medical cannabis in the state of Maryland because it is medicine. So when COVID hit, they they gave us all um, uh, essential worker uh, designations. So medical cannabis was an essential business. Uh, we were allowed to stay open. Now, that doesn't mean that it didn't change how we operate. Um, but sales were great. Um, with people staying home, um, you know, sales sales were, were really high for most of 2020. Now, do I think that's because of COVID or do I think it's because we instituted um, uh, a drive up pick, you know, pickup um, operations? And then also we went into delivery and we've expanded that. Um, you know, COVID kind of pushed those uh, marketing, uh, you know, market outlets a little, a little further than than we were wanting to to bring them initially. So I think the combination of one people staying home and then also our change in operations and making it more accessible um, really helped with with our sales. So yeah, we 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 did great. Um, we gave uh, all of our employees the options if they wanted to stay on board or if they wanted to. To take some time off, um, most stayed on board, uh, and um, like I said, Maryland was extremely supportive, giving medical cannabis workers the essential worker designation, and then also making the vaccine um, uh, available to them first. So that was another one. So delivery, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in other states, you have to have, or it, it, I hate it's so hard to talk about all of the different states. It's with all of these different regulations, but, you know, transporting cannabis as not the end user typically requires a different license. I've seen that in other mm -hmm. states. Did that apply to you guys? Did you have to go through any sort of extra piece movements, you know, to be able to offer that service to your customers? Yeah, there was no extra license that was necessary, um, but there were regulations that we had to meet. So we had to have our vehicle inspected. Um, you know, there has to be a division between the driver and the back. All product has to be carried in a locked, um, a locked, basically vault, um, and we had to develop, you know, SOPs for all that. We had to look into um, SaaS software to be able to route deliveries and make that most efficient, so we weren't just driving all over everywhere. Um, we had to to use software that, um, you know, created delivery areas. Uh, we're in Rockville, Maryland, which is just the suburb of DC. It's connected, uh, you know, to Bethesda, to, to Silver Spring. It's close to Gaithersburg. So 
being able to to limit where our delivery area was was big so really i mean there was no extra license it was just all operational how can we make this most efficient while meeting the regulations that the state had already put forward yeah yeah i i, I we went to a delivery method too uh, we don't have the regulations that you guys do obviously on the cbd side uh we self-regulate until we get more regulations um but let, let's take a moment and talk about what will happen when the federal government does come around. I mean, there's a lot of talks in DC um, about that happening soon, you know, decriminalization of the plant um, with various levels of reform um, going along with that. How do you feel that will impact the medical space? Because if it is federally legal, essentially that would open state commerce, right? I mean, so what's that going to do for cultivators, for retailers, for manufacturers? Do you think that's going to be a positive or is it a positive now that everything stays in state? I'd, I'd really like to hear your feedback on that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, oh man, it's a Pandora's box. I think it's uh, when federal, you know, let's, let's just say it, they're not going to reschedule. I don't believe they're going to reschedule cannabis into a schedule two or schedule three. I think most likely it will be descheduled and viewed much like alcohol, much like CBD, much like hemp as a, um, you know, dietary additive and be regulated by that. So yeah, it's, uh, we've already talked about IRS and tax implications, um, lowering the, the income tax and increasing the deductions that are, uh, that businesses are able to take uh, will be huge in making sure that these businesses stay profitable and operating. Um, with descheduling comes banks, uh, more opportunity for people with the knowledge, like myself, uh, who don't have millions of dollars or don't have access to people with millions of dollars. Um, and so, you know, being able to take a business plan to a bank and say, hey, this is my plan, and the bank not have to worry about the federal government coming in and shutting you down um, is, is going to be huge, and especially for the uh, racial equity aspect and, and, and um, you know, getting minority involvement in this industry, that's going to be huge. Uh, and then, yeah, interstate commerce, that's going to be a big one. Um, I think the multi-state operators, the big guys are going to get extremely big. Uh, but I think there's always going to be a space for locally owned small producers who are producing craft cannabis. So we look at, you know, I hate to use the alcohol industry as uh, adjunct because everyone does it and they're completely different. But we have large uh, manufacturers of, of beer. You know, we have got the Budweiser's, we got the, the Miller's, Michelob, Molson, you know, these huge beer operators. But then there are small microbreweries that are putting out craft products that are, you know, competing with those big guys, at least in the local space. So, uh, you know, I think... Like I said, I think really you're just going to see the industry expand um, when when federal deregulation happens. Awesome. Okay, 
I, I am really excited for the federal decriminalization of it. I would love to see it not scheduled also, which by the way, if you don't know, cannabis is still schedule one drug, schedule one meaning that they have found zero medicinal uses for the product, which we know is bogus bullshit. <laughs> so it's going to be great when they finally uh, move this along. So, you know, now that I actually read something the other day about um, researching, researching the plant, researching its medical benefits, its therapeutic use, um, and finally allowing people in the states to do so. Most of the you know cannabis research we have comes from overseas. So, as we start to bring some of that recently, how do you think that's going to impact the medical profession as far as doctors? Do you think? Um, do you think they'll actually put more of an emphasis on learning the endocannabinoid system in school, learning about the plant? How, how deep do you think that will go? Do you think it'll be more of like a specialty practice type situation? Like, how do I get to go to a doctor who can tell me, you know, what would be best instead of just recommending? Yeah, um, you know, I, I really don't know how that's going to affect it. I, I envision... Um, medical schools teaching about the endocannabinoid system, but I don't see a, an ECS specific doctor coming out. Um, I see it, you know, internal medicine. I see, um, you know, uh, cancer doctors uh, wanting to educate themselves. But really, if the DEA comes out and says, hey, we're just going to deschedule cannabis, we're not going to put it on schedule three, um, Doctors are going to, I think, really have to educate themselves, uh, especially with drug interactions um, for their patients. And, and thankfully, with descheduling, de uh, I think people would be more open uh, to discussing these things with their doctors and not feel like they need to hide it. And so I think, you know, once the, the research comes out and we've already seen the, the social view of cannabis change, um, I think more and more doctors are going to have their patients speak to them about it, become educated from a patient's perspective, which will lead them into uh, wanting to, to educate themselves. Now, with some medical programs, uh, there are CME requirements for doctors, um, which is great. I think if a doctor is recommending cannabis, they should be at least uh, minimally educated on the endocannabinoid system. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, to think that there's going to be like a cannabis, you know, I'm going to go to my cannabis specialist, uh, it, it's probably not going to happen outside of, uh, you know, internal medicine. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it, I would love to go to a doctor and say, Hey, how can, how can my cannabis use affect my autoimmune disease? Um, but unfortunately I just don't think that that's likely to happen. I think it's going to be a lot of patient education. Yeah. It's kind of just, and everybody's so different, right? Everybody's systems respond so differently. But when, when we were talking earlier about bud tenders, right. And mm -hmm. I mean, those really are the medical specialists if they're mm -hmm. trained properly, you know, you, you go into your dispensary and that's the person who, like you said, you go through the list of questions, you ask them everything. So making sure they're educated is key. So how do you train bud tenders, people to have that medical sense to be able to accurately guide 
the consumer, the customer, the patient. Yeah, it's educating the bud tenders, uh, you know, on all these aspects and really, you know, uh, showing them data. Um, it's outside of kind of a um, question flow chart of, you know, how do I interact with a patient? Um, it's it's really hiring people that are hungry for that education and hungry for that knowledge um, and then providing it to them. So, um, you know, someone might might come to an edible and say, well, that edible, you know, edibles just don't work. Edibles don't work for me. Um, and really to, to educate a bud, bud tender when they come into contact with that person, um, you know, is to educate them on uh, THC, uh, THC synthesis, synthesization in the liver, um, you know, uh, THC, 11-hydroxy, uh, the, the metabolite that is produced by the liver that actually has the effect um, when you eat cannabis. It's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's hiring the people that believe this is medicine, that are hungry for that knowledge, and then providing it to them. So where do you get that education from? Is there courses that you suggest they take? Is it educational pieces that you've put together? Like, where does this education come from? What would be the ideal you know, scenario, how, how do you set that up? Yeah. So for our education, uh, it's, it's my experience, uh, in 11 years of talking with patients. And then we also have a medical director. Um, our medical director is extremely uh, educated on the endocannabinoid system. And so, uh, because of the, the regulations with Maryland, he actually has to provide a lot of endocannabinoid system training. Uh, so it's, it's that combination of you know patient experience and medical aspect uh, there are lots of programs out there you know bud tender university 101 or you know all those different types of programs not all of them are great uh, some of them are just bare bones this is what you need to to work in the industry there are others that really go in depth into topics um, go in depth into uh, terpenes, flavonoids, monoterpenes, um, CBN, CBG, you know, all these different cannabinoids and educate the, the, the bud tender that way. So, uh, you know, I think probably the best one out there uh, is, is one called Green Flower. Um, they're really prolific uh, and they were developed by someone like myself, a, a dispensary agent who saw inefficiencies, who saw uh, failures in the in the in the industry and decided to do something about it. That's awesome. Yeah, I know uh, all my friends on the Missouri side who want to go work uh, as bud tenders. You know, they start learning about it and it's either too much for them or they get way more into it. And it's like, yes, mm -hmm. those are the people you want working behind your counter. <laughs> exactly. So you've been advocating for this plant for a long time. You've been involved with the industry for a long time. How important is it as a cannabis business owner, not, not even just in the retail space, but in any level of the plant to be involved in local lobbying and local legislations? Extremely important. Um, I mean, I think because of state views of cannabis, especially on the medical side, um, the first iteration of all the programs are not the same as they are five years down the road. 
And the reason be for that is because of advocates of industry participants going in and, and looking, how can we make this industry better? Um, you know, I think probably one of the biggest ones is Florida. They started out with a no flower, no smoking uh, provision in, in, in the state. And so uh, it was cannabis advocates, uh, it was patients who require inhalation um, to be able, you know, who lobbied and, and got that change. So uh, it's extremely important. And as we look at more and more local control issues with the cannabis industry, uh, it's getting more and more important to get active on the local level as well. Um, you know, a lot of states allow municipalities to, to completely ban cannabis industries, uh, which not only removes jobs, it removes tax income, sales tax. Um, you know, it, it, it does a lot to hurt the community. Um, and so, you know, getting active on the local level to change those is extremely important, not only just to be able to, to maximize the benefit, but even just to operate. Yeah. Chris, I want to thank you so much for coming on here and talking to me about your business and just your wealth of knowledge in this industry. I want you to leave me with one thing. If you had one piece of advice, one golden ticket piece of advice to someone wanting to start a medical marijuana dispensary, what would it be? Who um, the golden piece of advice would be. I think I said it before, and that's surround yourself with people that support you. Um, no one can do this alone. I don't have all the, the security knowledge, so I need to surround my myself with people that know security. I need to surround myself with people that know construction, you know, uh, MEP, all that kind of stuff. So it's really just build, build the best team, find all the, the pieces that you need to put together. And, and start putting that team together. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. I do appreciate it. I do want to remind everybody today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Don't forget new Startup Hustle po podcast episodes air Monday through Friday. If you're in the e-commerce space, be sure to check out Andrew Morgan's episodes that air every Tuesday. His company, Marknology, is an Amazon brand accelerator company. You don't want to miss his episodes. I'll see you guys next Friday. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.